spiritual director. So um, I'm going to pair two scenes from the Gospels. It's springtime. We're, we're paying special attention to the like nature scenes in the Gospel and uh, pairing them with uh, Jesus before or after the resurrection. I'm going to start with a, a text from, uh, I believe this is John chapter um, 14. Um, it's Jesus talking to his disciples in the uh, final meal that he had with them, which may have been a, a Passover Seder, may, not, may have been the evening before Passover. It's not super clear. But he says, These things I have spoken to you while remaining with you, but the Advocate, his special name for the Spirit, meaning like defense attorney, the Advocate, the Spirit, the Holy One, which the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I give to you not as the cosmos gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I like this translation. It's the David Bentley Heart translation. It hews very close. He's a Eastern Orthodox scholar. He's very closely to the... Um, to the Greek. That's why he uses the term cosmos instead of uh, world there. But this is part of a, um, a quite a lengthy discourse in the Gospel of John, which is like of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is like the most different from all the others. It's like a mystical interpretation of Jesus. It was probably written later than the earlier Gospels. And there's this long discourse, I think it's chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, where Jesus is just like downloading his like last comments before he goes and does the crucifixion deed. Um, and we're probably familiar with this particular scene in the, the upper room uh, through the Da Vinci painting, which is kind of like a, a cozy scene around the fire sort of feel to it. Um, but we forget that what was going on in Jerusalem at this time was extremely perilous for the disciples gathered there. Um, you know, they say that the usual population of Jerusalem was anywhere between 100,000 and 200,000, so like the size of Ann Arbor Ipsy. And during the high uh, holy days, the big festivals, the three major feasts, including the Passover feast, uh, the population of Jerusalem would swell to like two million. So like, imagine like two million people. It's like bigger than football Saturday in, in the streets of Jerusalem for this Passover. And remember, Jerusalem was under like a military occupation. So crowds in those settings are, are like a, a tinderbox, you know, a, 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 an event, a, a protest could, could break out at any moment, triggering a crushing response from the Roman military. And Jesus and his disciples are like, like if anyone in Jerusalem, they are under scrutiny because he's leading this messianic movement, was, which was always a threat to the to the Roman Empire and the leadership of Israel is divided over it because it's a threat to Israel's existence if Rome comes crashing down. So it's just a lot of anxiety in Jerusalem for this last dinner and this, these final words of Jesus. Um, so, you know, if you've, we find ourselves in um, emotional double binds from time to time when... Um, 
circumstances are like pressing on us like and we feel like we have to make some kind of move because the current situation is is completely untenable it feels like to us but it's like we've only got like two options and no matter which option we pick it's just the consequences are just going to be bad in different ways and and you know during the daytime if we ever have our mind not on something focused we're we're preoccupied with this thing at nighttime the the fear goblins come out and they just you know have a heyday with our with our brains and and we're just in one of those spots the disciples are all together in the same kind of emotional double bind situation and in the middle of that Jesus says peace I leave you my peace I give you so this the emotions of this scene remind me of something in the those other gospels Matthew Mark and Luke all have the same scene um, and it's a it's a it's a, a storm scene last night we had a storm rolling through through here um, and it goes like this early in the ministry of Jesus is the setting versus later that the, the John text this is from Mark's gospel and a great windstorm arose and the waves broke into the boat they're in the they're in the sea of Galilee at nighttime so that now the boat was filling Jesus and his disciples in the boat and he Jesus was asleep on the pillow in the stern is that the front of the boat or the back of the boat bunch of city people don't know where the stern is what's that it's the back of the boat in the stern I knew that once you mentioned it um, uh, and he was asleep on the pillow in the stern in the back of the boat and they rouse him and say to him teacher doesn't it matter to you that we're perishing and being woken he rebuked the wind and said to the sea be silent quell yourself and the wind fell and great calm came about and he said to them why are you so afraid how is it you don't have faith and they were afraid enormously afraid and said to one another who then is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him so um, frequently in the Gospels um, the violence of nature breaking out in storms is paired with the violence of crowds uh, threatening to break out at any time into mob violence um, so the storm on the lake happens as Jesus is just starting to draw a bunch of crowds big crowds in Luke 4 I think it is uh, Jesus speaks to his home, home homies in, in his hometown synagogue where an admiring crowd just like on a dime morphs into a mob that nearly throws him off the cliff so this is like the tension of the Gospels and remember the occupation forces are everywhere in Israel which means young men with weapons um, and that just adds to the tension um, I went to I visited Belfast in the in the 1990s when Belfast was under um, British occupation I did a really stupid thing I was uh, driving from the airport with 
my host and I had a camera and there's a, a convoy of British troops like an open open they're sitting on the benches in the truck and they're all sit, young men sitting there with their rifles and their gear on and I thought well this is interesting and I took my camera from the sitting in the back seat of the car and I went to take a picture of them do not do that they all turned their weapons on me and my host was like put that camera down like you idiot because, well, people would take pictures of the troops and then post them and, you know, and it was like a hostile action to point something at these. And they were all young men. It's like, oh, there is a lot of tension uh, here in Belfast. Um, does anyone else feel uneasy in crowds? Um, I, I used to love crowds, actually. I would go to the Tiger game and I would love, like, before, uh, the beforehand or, like, a stadium concert. I will not date myself as a U2 fan and a baby boomer or whatever, but, yeah. When I went to see Sigurós, when I went to see Smashing Pumpkins in stadium con Anyway, I'm in the, I'm in the stadium concert and I love like the half hour before the opening act comes and you just, there's just the buzz of the crowd, you know? And I just love sitting there and kind of like soft focus and feel like a bee in a beehive uh, kind of thing. You feel connected to other humans in a crowd. And uh, so I used to love crowds and then I went through a, a difficult period with my religious crowd and I developed uh, claustrophobia. So I would, I would find myself feeling panicky in crowds instead of like, oh, all connected to my fellow human beings. Um, if you were upset by the 2016 election, you may be dealing with a form of crowd anxiety now, actually, where you're like, oh, what kind of country are, are we living in? Like this, there's something going on that makes me feel very uneasy. So this is... This is the kind of experience people in occupation would have of crowds. So we've got these two pictures side by side. One in John's Gospel, anxious disciples at dinner in the powder keg of Jerusalem at Passover. And Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then side by each, the disciples in a boat at night, and as happened in the Sea of Galilee, a sudden squall comes, overtakes them, Jesus is asleep on a pillow in the back of the boat and they're distressed with him. They wake him up and he calms everything down and they get even more terrified. So we have a, pair, uh, a pattern here. <laughs> and the pattern is disciples freaking out, Jesus um, inexplicably unperturbed. Um, and we should add that the disciples had very legitimate reasons for being upset and distressed. They were not upset because their iPhone battery had died just before they needed to call for an Uber. Uh, they were upset for quite legitimate reasons. Their, their lives were under legitimate threat. And in both cases, you can just imagine how the calm of Jesus in the midst of their anxiety would seem out of place. Um, when someone is super calm, when you're really upset, it can be actually infuriating. 
you know, we, we interpret their calmness as like they feel no connection to me. Like my being distressed doesn't bother them because they don't give a rat's ass about me and they're, so they can just afford to be totally uh, calm. Um, you get this when you call Comcast. <laughs> you know, like, you know, have you noticed that they're like trained to say, oh, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry you're having this difficulty and they just ooze this kind of programmed um, uh, empathy and that can be in my worst Comcast story is Julia, my wife, was um, her, her husband died in 2011. It's four years later. Uh, we've gotten married. I've moved into the house and she figures it's time to um, change the Comcast whatever. Calls up Comcast. She's been paying the bills for, you know, for four years since Richard died. And the Comcast person says, well, I'm sorry, we can't, um, we can't change the, the package for you because you're not, it's not in your name. It's under Richard Bailey's name, who died four years earlier. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm his wife. I'm like, uh, I, I've been, you've been taking the money from me, and I'm, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And then it turns out that they can't even switch it over to her, that you, we have to go in in person and bring a death certificate to Comcast, and then they shut down the... We now have AT&T. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just hard to express. Your, your spouse dies. You have to get death certificates to do this with insurance and that. And you, find, you go to the bank and you change. It's a super hassle. It's stressful because it's connected to this loss. And then Comcast, four years later, needs a death certificate. And you've used them all up for the... It's, oh, it's like... Calm down, Ken. It happened like two years ago. It's okay. <laughs> but the, the calm, unperturbed, I'm so sorry for your loss from the person on the other end of the phone was truly infuriating. So Jesus is in a possession of a different kind of calm than that um, feigned empathy calm. Um, he was literally in the same boat with the disciples when the storm. So his life was at risk to the extent that their life was at risk. So he, he knew what was going on. He was not without empathy for their situation because he was literally in the same boat with them. Um, in, the, in the John situation, uh, he was actually in graver danger than the disciples were. Um, he ended up crucified. They came out of that unscathed. Uh, and so it's a different kind of calm than that infuriating one. Um, you can see this when sometimes when people are dying. Uh, sometimes when people are dying, everyone around them, their immediate family, is super distraught. And sometimes the person dying is totally at peace and calm. And it's quite a remarkable thing to witness that. And the person who's dying ends up calming the people who are distressed around them. 
uh, when my when my dad passed away, I was I was caring for him. He was in our home, and uh, we had uh, left for a break. My sister came in to take care of him. Turns out that's when he died, and he was he was thrashing. He was not. Um, he lived a hard life. He had a lot of anxiety. My father did, and, and he was his dying kind of reflected that. And my sister was like you know, getting all the anxiety and she, she got, she just couldn't handle it for a moment and she went out into the living room and she um, pulled out Psalm 23 and just read it to, silently to like calm herself down and then went back into the room with my dad and he was like totally peaceful and he says to her, not knowing what she did, um, even though we walk through the valley of death, we will fear no evil. We're, we're all going to make it through this. And he was like perfectly, perfectly calm in the midst of that um, distressing for Nancy uh, situation. This is, this is what's going on here. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I give to you not as the cosmos gives. So that word cosmos is an important one. It's a very Jewish word um, in the Jewish understanding the universe was an ordered entity. That's what cosmos means. Cosmos is like the, the creation as an ordered entity. It's actually the foundation of science that, you know, we, we assume in science that lo the laws of nature here and the laws of nature on Mars are all the same because this is a cosmos. It's an ordered kind of uh, place that we're in as contrasted with a chaos which was like more the ancient model of things. Like things would just happen and they weren't understood and things were just randomly coming out of nowhere. The Hebrew understanding in Genesis 1 is that no, the world is a cosmos. It's an ordered place. Um, so the peace Jesus gives, he gives not as the cosmos gives. What does that mean? Uh, could mean a few things. I don't know. Um, maybe it means the source of the peace that he's offering is beyond the normal order of things. Like that, that would make sense. Um, I've been doing Headspace for the past year. It's a um, mindfulness meditation app. Andy gives you the prompts and I love it. And they have, a, they have little video things to teach you different meditation techniques. And one of the videos is um, it, it, you have to learn how to um, notice when you're having distracting thoughts and return to your focus. That's the, the thing about meditation. And so, so you have this little cartoon video where it says, think of your thoughts as like clouds in the sky, but there's always the blue sky on the other side of the clouds, and that's like the baseline calm. And so, you know, if you remember, maybe as a kid, or maybe the first time you actually flew in a plane, and it was, you know, especially if it was cloudy or a little bit stormy, and then you pop over the clouds, and it's like, oh, actually here everything is calm, and it's blue sky, and it's, it's like, oh, we're under the clouds, and now we're over the clouds and everything's, everything's fine up here. That's, that's the idea of meditation. So you think of your thoughts as you just notice them like a, pa a cloud passing and then you return your focus to the, like the blue sky above the clouds. Some of you are smiling as I'm telling you about this, but I get it. Um, 
So it could mean that, that Jesus is um, in touch with a peace that is beyond this order of things. Or it could mean that he gives peace not as the cosmos does after the storm, but actually in the middle of the storm. Like that's an unusual place to get peace in the middle of the storm versus waiting for the storm to be over. Um, just to give ourselves some slack for being lousy peace receivers. We're all lousy peace receivers. Let's just say that, right? Okay. So Jesus is a good peace giver. We are all crappy peace receivers. And so we're on like a learning curve for receiving uh, peace. We all are. And the, the proof of that is the disciples, you know. I mean, Jesus literally calms the storm. And then the text says they were more terrified. <laughs> you know, like, you know how fear is? It just, you're, you're fearful about something. And then your fear latches on to one thing, and then that one thing goes away, and then your fear just latches on to another thing. It's like the fear is the thing, and what it's attached to is like immaterial. That's, what's, that's what often is going on with the disciples with fear. Um, so there's got to be a learning curve when it comes to becoming a peace receiver. My peace, I give you. So what was that? Um, I think what that was, was throughout his life, Jesus fostered a childlike connection to the divine. Like that was, you know, every religious tradition mediates its different experience of the divine or understanding of the divine. Jesus' experience and understanding of the divine is having a particular relationship to the divine that's like a childlike connection to a caring parent. So Jesus imagined or experienced God as a loving parent holding him. And, and his like, um, word for that was Abba. His, his word for God was Abba, which is like the first child's uh, attempt to say the name of the father. I think in many languages, uh, Ama is like the equivalent for mother. There's a lot of similarities in languages about the first attempt to use the parent's name. Jesus' Jesus' name was Abba because that was the relationship with the divine that he was experiencing and that he was like offering or mediating. And if you wanted to follow his way, that's the kind of spirituality he was he was uh, offering. So to strip away the religious sounding language, Jesus had a conviction or he had an experience or he had an experience that shaped a conviction <laughs> that everything that exists derives from a benevolent loving power. Everything that exists derives from a loving benevolent power and since he was in the line of the Hebrew prophets, he also believed that um, everything is moving toward a justice-shaped future that we are under obligation to help bring about. So that was his understanding. Everything that exists comes from a benevolent, loving power, and everything is moving toward a, a justice-shaped future that we have an obligation to help as we find ourselves able and as we have the light to, to help bring that 
justice-shaped future into existence. And that's the power that is the ultimate source of all being, including ours. It's like how we think of what's going on here makes a big difference in our, inside our heads. And Jesus' secret superpower was his faith was he believed that he was like a child in the arms of a mother. So he, he was someone who could embrace his human vulnerability and didn't have a problem with that. And that was his understanding. And he had practices that nurtured that understanding. Um, uh, he had this intuition, this faith, this hope about things. And he observed the Sabbath. That was an expression of, that was a practice connected to that understanding. He meditated on the Torah, on the prophets, on the Psalms, on the wisdom writings, the divine feminine part of scripture, the Sophia tradition in his prayer practices. Um, this is what uh, got him through the day. So like even having like a 10 minute daily meditation practice or like doing some kind of exercise routine where you experience calm and doing that on a daily basis and noticing how you feel when you're calm. What does it feel like? Having a practice like that that's daily where you can identify the feeling of being calm and you can do something that mediates that experience of being calm. Meditation, um, taking a vigorous walk outside, uh, hunting and being in the duck blind or whatever it is, um, so that when circumstances like unravel and a storm comes down, you know what it feels like to be calm. And you can remember that feeling and then the calm, you kind of access it. So that's how Jesus did it. There were practices that he had that conveyed that calm that came from that understanding of he's, in, he's a child in the hands of a loving mother or father. And, and then when, when push came to shove, he was able to access that feeling and that sense. And this is what he's like offering, offering to his disciples. Um, one last thing, and we'll, we'll be done on this. Um, ordinary religion is sin-focused. So I, I, the best uh, description of this is the uh, Santa Claus song. Um, he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Like that is the heart of like ordinary religion. So the, the problem is sin and the focus is sin and the thing we need to be worried about is sin. This was not the focus of Jesus in his ministry. Not that he, he had an understanding of sin, he referred to it. His focus for what messes us up was fear, not sin. So a gazillion times Jesus saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, especially after the resurrection, his opening words to people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. If he was upset with his disciples, it was because they were giving into fear. So fear is the, is the problem in Jesus' understanding of what's our dilemma, not sin per se. And the thing is, we know that we catch fear from other people, right? Like fear is a contagion. 
Fear happens through proximity to someone else who is afraid. I mean, have you been around someone who's anxious and found yourself feeling anxious? Or you're in a room full of anxious people? Or you, have, you come from an anxious family system and you go home and you just walk right into that anxiety and it feels like you're just plugging into the anxiety and you start feeling fearful and anxious. Yeah, that's how, that's how fear works. We, it's a contagion. We pass it from one person to another. We can catch fear from other people due to our, you know, mirroring system, blah, blah, blah. Jesus acted as though peace was also a contagion. That peace is something that we can catch from peaceful people. Um, and so he was a peaceful person kind of asking his frightened disciples to stop focusing on the fear around them, but to focus on him so that the mirroring system would work for peace. Um, so peace is a contagion just as much as fear is in the Jesus understanding of things. So that has implications, like for who God might be in, in the Jesus vision of God. What if the primary emotional effect that emerges from the Jesus way of doing God is peace. And what if you actually believe that? Um, so the primary emotional effect of the way Jesus does God is not guilt, it's not shame, and it's not sin worry. It's not sin worry. Am I sinning? Am I doing something wrong? Am I, where am I at on the moral scale, whatever? What if what the real problem is in his understanding is fear, and the real antidote is peace. Um, in, in the game of uh, my religion is better than your religion, um, people who like Jesus tend to interpret him as like an amazing innovator. Jesus is an amazing innovator. You know, there's the old covenant. And they're all mixed up about God. And he brings the new covenant where everyone understands God like for the first time. And Jesus is a great religious innovator. Boo honky. That has nothing to do with like the historical record about, about Jesus. Jesus was embedded in a tradition. He wasn't an innovator so much as he was an interpreter. And as interpreters do, he would take things in the tradition that he was embedded in, and he would intensify them. It's like, this is the stuff to really pay attention to. And in this case, this peace business, this is Jesus, not as an innovator, but as an interpreter and an intensifier of his own tradition. So the Hebrew greeting, the Hebrew version of hello is shalom. And that means peace be with you. Uh, Arabic has the same thing, assalam, uh, alakam, some peace be with you. It's, it's all from the same um, part of the world. The greeting was a greeting of peace. So, um, and Jesus was very explicit about this when he was uh, giving his disciples instructions about how to go about and, uh, you know, bring his message to all the villages and that kind of stuff. He deputized them to go give the message of God's good realm breaking in and all that. Uh, he said, when you enter a home, um, give it your peace. That's, an, that's like, I think he meant that in a very literal way. 
Like you have a piece that you bring with you and then go and give it to the people around you. It's, your peace is contagious. Just go ahead, just spread, spread your peace by br bringing your peace into that setting. Uh, and, and that was very much in keeping with the Hebrew greeting of Shalom. Um, actually, in the Christian tradition, it's, this is preserved in the liturgical churches, that um, nightmare for introverts in liturgical worship services called the passing of the peace. In the Episcopal Church, I, I was going to church with Julia, and it had been a long time since I've been in an Episcopal Church, and like, I think it happens, like, I think it's the homily, like the sermon, which is usually the center of the Protestant Church, and then it's communion, which is like the Eucharist, that's like the big show. And before that, they have the exchange of the peace, and it's where like all chaos breaks loose. They said, now we're going to exchange the peace. And everyone just starts walking around, shaking hands with people and they hugging people and peace be with you, peace be with you. I can be a bit introverted in certain settings. And I'm like, when is this going to be over? Like, what does an introvert do during the passing of the peace? Like, there should just be like a, a hood you could put over your head. You know, it just says... Just give it to me, but don't touch me, you know, or don't make me smile and say something to you, or are we going to start a conversation, or what's happening here, and when does it end? Um, that comes from this Jewish tradition of shalom and of the peace, and so we're going to do that from now on here. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I know, I know Lisa wants that. She's, a, she's like a, the most extroverted person on the planet, but she's developing empathy for the introverts, but um, where was I? Oh, um, so think about Jesus that way, that maybe we could have a contagious experience of peace just as we shift our focus to him um, in, in the middle of a storm. So, okay, I'm done. Um, let's have a, we're going to do a peace meditation now. Um, I'll set, I'll, um, We'll set the scene, a common way to do a meditation, set a scene, like a visual scene, and then insert a message in the middle of the scene. So the, the, the scene would be, uh, comes from, or the message, let's start with that. Um, the message would come from Julian of Norwich. Julian of, no oh no, it's not Norwich, it's Norwich. Yes, I learned that from my Episcopal priest wife, and then uh, you know that too, yes. Julian of Norwich, the first um, discovered manuscript in English written by a woman was written by Julian of Norwich in the, I think, 14th century? And it, it's called the, uh, the Revelations of Divine Love. She was an anchorite, an anchorite as I understand, as a person like anchored to a church building and they make, a, they make like a room for the anchorite and the anchorite stays a lot of the time in that one room and meditates and prays and walks around the grounds and they bring the person food. And, but then she becomes like a guru for the town and people come and visit her and then she says things to them and they're like, whoa, and you gain a reputation by being a good anchorite that way. And she was like top, top flight anchorite and she, her most famous um, line that came from her revelations of divine love was divine love said to her, all shall be well 
and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And that sounds very Hallmark Cardi, but she lived in Norwich during the, um, during the plague when half the population was killed. I think there was a peasant revolt during her, her time in Norwich when, when the, you know, the imperial forces like killed a bunch of peasants who were, you know, uh, objecting for reasonable reasons. And uh, so she, she wasn't like unfamiliar with suffering and she became very close to dying from a, a near a lethal illness just before she had her revelations of divine love, which most famously include, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So that's the message. And then the scene, I was just invite you, we could just start now, just relax and, and take maybe a couple of deep breaths, um, cleansing breaths, get comfortable in your chair. And if you can picture um, whatever might be the most familiar or um, appealing, expansive view of nature, like a sunset or some scene at a national park that you've been to. Um, and just take a minute to let yourself focus on that scene, place yourself in it in whatever way is comfortable for you, but an expansive view of nature, whatever that is for you. And then just listen for this message like in the context of that scene. Just repeat it to yourself. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And the revelations of divine love. Amen.